Okay, the kiddos can go to Children's Church, and if you've got your Bible with you, you can turn to Matthew chapter 21, and if you don't have your Bible with you, there's some Bibles back there. I'd encourage you to sneak back there and get one. Nobody will notice. Let's pray. Our great God, we hear the words of our Master today, our great Lord, our King, and we put ourselves under Him. We ask You to speak through a weak vessel to proclaim His truth. We ask in His name, amen. Many people for the last 2,000 years have called Jesus a master teacher, not just Christians, but I mean, I think everybody recognizes. In fact, that's what unbelievers say. I think Jesus was a great teacher. Um, so everybody sort of recognizes that. But it, you pick any subject he speaks to, and he brings clear understanding with easy to grasp, yet very profound principles to apply. Jesus never did this. He never put his finger to the wind to find out what the prevailing winds were, at least not with regard to ideas and truth or anything like that. He, he never worried about public opinion and shaping his point of view. He tells it straight. And he could do that because of an unwavering devotion to God and his word. And all that mattered to him was that his father wanted something done or something said, and that's what he would do. He had this amazing ability to put everything in the right perspective. He can do this with very specific topics like like worry or telling the truth or the sanctity of marriage and he can do it with very broad topics like God's plan for all the ages. He's a master teacher and naturally he's most famous for his use of parables, right? Stories from life which illustrate great spiritual realities and way back in Matthew 13, Matthew kind of collected all of these kingdom parables in one place and we saw in that chapter that parables have a dual effect usually that's their sort of design for that they give understanding to those whose hearts are open and ready those who believe especially and they confound those who have closed off hearts and, and minds so they actually and that actually serves a divine purpose in fact there's a conversation in Matthew chapter 13 in the parable chapter that flows from Jesus disciples asking him why he speaks in parables because it's not always that clear. And he, he says, uh, well, they came to him and they said, why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered, to you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. For wh whoever has, to him more shall be given, and he will, be, he will have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. Therefore I speak to them in parables, because while seeing they do not see, and while hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. In their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says, you will keep on hearing, but will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull. Their ears, with their ears, they scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they would see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and return, and I would heal them. So frequently, the parables reveal hard hearts of those who will not repent and believe. Those who are spiritually insensible will not benefit from them nor understand them as a rule. But one of the delightful things about today's parable that we're going to look at in Matthew 21 is that Jesus' enemies, they get it. They catch on. The parable is clear to them. And it's done publicly. 
He's exposing their wicked hearts publicly. The setting is the same text we looked at last Sunday. It's the Passion Week, probably Tuesday. Jesus is going to be executed on Friday. Um, now, he, he's in the temple, and for now, the temple is his. He's taken charge of it. He's put out the money changers. He's engaged in healing and extensive teaching. Nobody can stop him from doing anything he wants. We saw last time that the chief priests and the elders approached Jesus while he was teaching, interrupted him, and questioned him about the source of his authority. And of course, he showed them by asking him, they're the experts, right? Is John the Baptist a prophet or not? Is he from God or is he not from God? And after a little huddle, if you recall what they said, um, we don't know. <laughs> so Jesus pointed out that even harlots and tax collectors believe that John was a prophet. So they are more discerning and closer to salvation than the chief priests and the elders of the people. And he sets them up with this little story. So this is the previous parable. Then we're going to work towards our parable for today. But in verse 28, remember he said, what do you think? A man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, son, go to work today in the vineyard. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he regretted it and went. This man came to his second son and said the same thing. And he answered, I will, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? And they said, being brilliant men, the first Jesus said, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes did believe him. And you, seeing this, did not even feel remorse so as to believe him afterward. Just nails them, just directly, publicly, powerfully. And that's where we stopped last time. But he's not done. He's made a really good case showing that by their own words they are clueless about the most important spiritual issue of the day. But he's not done. And he's revealed that they are ignorant. They don't know what God is doing. They use the ministry. God used the ministry of John the Baptist to do that, to expose them as fools and empty suits. But there's a lot more. Now he's going to explain... Now he's going to explain what God is up to with him, with Jesus. What is going on before their very eyes on that very day, that week, the last week of his life. So Matthew 21, 33 begins with the words, listen to another parable. Luke's gospel tells us that he's addressing this new parable to all the people. Remember, they came and interrupted him while he was teaching, so there were people around. And he's opening this up now to everyone Everyone taught by Jesus when the chief priests and the elders interrupted him. And what Jesus is going to do here is, it's pretty amazing. We're gonna, I'm going to bring in some other scriptures, so just kind of be patient with me, because he's pulling out of the Old Testament himself like crazy here. Uh, he begins with very familiar imagery from scripture describing Israel's historical relationship with God. Then he asserts his own uniqueness as God's son, the Messiah, prophesies his own end and then spells out the doom that awaits those who remain that are unbelieving. All in one parable. And it's not that long. Master, teacher. So he begins with a clear allusion to Isaiah chapter 5 and I'm going to read that portion of Isaiah 5 first, okay? You don't have to turn there, you can just listen. But it's an Old Testament parable. Let me sing now for my well-beloved a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. 
My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it all around, removed it to stones, and planted it with the choicest vine. And he built a tower in the middle of it. And he also hewed out a wine vat in it. Then he expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more is there to do for my vineyard that I have not done it? Why, when I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? So now let me tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it will be consumed. I will break down its wall and it will be trampled ground. I will lay it waste. It will not be pruned or hoed, but briars and thorns will come up. I will also charge the clouds to rain no rain on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah his delightful plant. Thus he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, a cry of distress. So this is all about, Isaiah 5 there is all about God's judgment on Israel and the destruction and the captivity he brought on them for their waywardness, their idolatry. And so Jesus is going to borrow that imagery. People who knew their Bible in that day could not miss the analogy he's drawing here. Just like Isaiah, Jesus describes from the beginning what the landowner did to create a vineyard. So verse 33 here in Matthew 21, there was a landowner. Who's the landowner in the parable? It's God, right? Anybody who knew the Isaiah 5 passage would know right away that this is God he's talking about. God is pictured as a man making an investment in an enterprise from which he expects some return. The landowner takes great care to do things right. It says there was a landowner who planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower. It's just like Isaiah 5. And rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. Here's sort of the new part of it. Jesus is adapting it now. He rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. So he did everything to produce a valuable commodity and he entrusted it into the hands of other men. He planted, he walled it off, he built the wine, but he did everything. He had a tower for a watchman to keep an eye on it. Everything was there. It's an investment situation built for others to use and benefit from as long as the owner was given what was due to him by agreement. And Jesus says at the end of verse 33, he went on a journey. And in Luke's gospel, he says he went on a journey for a long time. Indeed, God founded the nation of Israel. He formed it as a nation, a nation of his own choosing. He started it with incredible displays of power, nurtured it along and provided all that it needed to succeed. And the very idea of the owner going on a journey refers to the fact that God's direct, super miraculous hand on Israel was limited once she was established. He stepped back a little bit. He was involved in Um, doing things, but nothing like bringing them out of Egypt and crossing the Red Sea and all the stuff that happened in the wilderness and just things like that just weren't happening very often anymore. World-shattering miracles. There was only one Moses and the law was given and it was complete and they were to live by it. But world-shattering miracles are pretty infrequent. But it was God's nation by promise, which means he owned it. He made the rules. He put an excellent system in place. And he made some distance to see what they were going to do. 
They didn't do well. And in the parable, when the harvest came, the landowner sent some servants to get his portion of the fruit of this vineyard. Verse 34. When the harvest time approached, he sent his slaves to the vine growers to receive his produce. The vine growers took his slaves and beat one and killed another and stoned a third. So one starts to get a suspicion that these folks don't want to pay what they owe. In fact, their opposition to the landowner is so extreme that they become violent. He built it, and they are going to take it for themselves. They're saying, it doesn't belong to you, even though you made it, this is ours now. He tries again in verse 36. Again, he sent another group of slaves, larger than the first, and they did the same thing to them. So wow, he sends a larger group of slaves, somewhat more intimidating than the first group, and they attack them too. Drive them off. Maybe kill some of them. So who are the slaves in a parable like this? Well, they're the prophets. They're the prophets. Jesus is describing, he's describing God's dealing with his vineyard, the nation of Israel. He sends them looking for the fruit of the covenant. Their obedience, that would be the fruit of the covenant. But his messengers are mistreated and beaten and even slain. Prophets are God's messengers calling on men and women to give God their due, what his due is, what he's owed. That's what prophets do. You agreed to obey him. You were going to follow him. What's going on? God planted his nation to bear fruit, to be a light to the world, to give hope to the nations. And when the fruit was not forthcoming, he sent men to remind them, men like Samuel and Isaiah and Elijah and Elisha and Jeremiah. But time after time, his messengers were punished. Jeremiah was beaten and imprisoned and thrown down into a cistern. Obadiah had to hide a hundred prophets he had to hide in a cave somewhere. Elijah was hunted down and nearly killed. Isaiah, it's not in the Bible, but later sources say he was sawn in half. And here's God speaking in Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 25. Since the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt until this day, I have sent you all my servants, the prophets, daily rising early and sending them. Yet they did not listen to me or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck. They did more evil than their fathers. Nehemiah chapter 9 verse 26 says, The people cast your law behind their backs and killed your prophets who had admonished them so they might return to you. The New Testament book of Hebrews, looking back on Israel's history and her treatment of the prophets, says, Hebrews eleven thirty-six 36 says, others, were, others experienced mockings and scourging Yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two, probably Isaiah. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. The servants of the landowner were not respected, not acknowledged, treated as creatures to be destroyed. So the landowner decides on a whole new approach. And it sounds crazy. It seems so strange. And it's supposed to grab your attention. In the normal course of things, one would expect that by now the law would be brought in, right? A large force, soldiers, hired deputies, something. The tribal elders appealed to to bring in a small force. I mean, that's how you would do it in those days. You'd go to the tribal elders. You'd say, these people have... 
stolen my land, they've killed my servants, and I need your help. They would gather a large force of men armed and come in there and do justice. That's what they would have done. But he doesn't do that. Because it's not about a landowner. It's not about a vineyard. This is who God is and his covenant people. And these are the people God took as his own through promises made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And this is what God does, verse 37. Afterward, he sent his son to them. Saying, they will respect my son. That's not the way a businessman acts to protect his investment, but it's the way God It's the way of God, a God of enormous compassion for sinners. It's the way he acts to bring them back into fellowship with him. You don't send your son to men that have killed your slaves repeatedly. But he sends his son. Mark and Luke say in the same parable, he calls him his beloved son. So the Messiah is God's son. He's declaring it now openly. And he comes to his people knowing they're full of rebellion against his father, but he comes anyway, seeking to bring them back to the Father and to make them once again a fruitful people. They will respect my son, he says, hopefully. Well, the owner could not make his claim any clearer than sending his son. That's the one advantage. His son has the greatest claim on the land. But the renters of the vineyard who run the enterprise are are so twisted and so evil that they don't even respect the owner's son. So committed to keeping what's not theirs, they decide to kill him. So verse 38, when the vine growers saw the son, they said among themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him and seize his inheritance. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. That's the human condition. That's the human condition. God made us. God owns us. He gave us a productive world to cultivate and enjoy in his name. But sin has so twisted the human heart that we think we can do what we want. We think it belongs to us. My life, my property, my body, my identity. Our whole modern culture screams in defiance of God these things. Man believes he owes nothing to him who made us except to use his name as a curse word or as some kind of divine paramedic when we're in trouble. This is the heir. Let us kill him and seize the inheritance. Now remember, he's talking to Israel's leaders here and those who manage God's holy, holy temple. He's exposing their motives. We'll keep our positions of power regardless of what God says or does through his prophets or through his son. It's no different today. We live in very different times, a very different culture, but the human heart is exactly the same. And if Jesus showed up today and pointed men to their obligations of the creator, he would be hated just the same, and if people had the power to do it, they would kill him. They would want him dead. It's really interesting when people today that are into, uh, you know, this kind of acceptance of all things, no matter what it is or how weird it is, They say, if Jesus were here today, he would know. If Jesus were here today, you would want him dead because he'd tell you the truth. So these vine growers decide, as Israel's leaders decide, 
to do away with him. Can they just do that? Can they just get away with that? Well, Jesus asks his listeners, and he he brings them into the story here. Verse 40. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine growers? That's a good question. He just kind of throws it out there. Now, remember, a lot of people are there. So somebody in the crowd stands up and says, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end and rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds at the proper season. So he's... The suggestion from this guy in the crowd is he's going to do two things. He's going to bring those who rejected his son to a wretched end. And he's going to put the vineyard in the hands of those who will acknowledge his lordship and pay him what he deserves. And they're exactly right. So a big change is coming. The vineyard, God's chosen children of Abraham as a nation will be set aside for a long time, for a new people to produce the fruit of Messiah's kingdom. This new people will include some from Abraham's offspring, but it will include millions of people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation on the entire earth. And he's not done yet. Now his mind turns to Psalm 118. Let's look at verse 42. Jesus said to them, Did you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? This became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. So Psalm 118, that's pretty interesting. Now you know on the day of the triumphal entry, Sunday, two days before this is happening, All the people were waving palm branches and waving their clothes and garments and scattering their garments before Jesus on the ground and shouting a sentence from Psalm 118, verse 26, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And Matthew mentioned that in chapter 21, verse 9. They knew the psalm, and now Jesus is is explaining two really interesting and rather mysterious lines from that psalm. I don't know what ancient people thought those words meant before him, But he's going to tell you what they really meant. Verse 42, Jesus said, Did you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? This became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord. It is marvelous in our eyes. It's a word picture, obviously. So you're imagining men building a structure out of stones. They select or they reject stones based on what they think will work best for what they want to build. So funny, when I was in Uganda this last, uh, whenever that was, when was I there in the summer? (laughs) But, um, they were building a stone wall and facing it and they had all these stones just scattered all over the place and they were picking and choosing and cutting and breaking and throwing stuff away and they had piles of worthless things and it was just exactly this, only this is something bigger and grander. But one stone they reject, they go, oh, this is unusable, it's worthless and they cast it aside. But that rejected stone becomes the chief cornerstone and it's a marvel the most important stone in the foundation of the new structure, the chief cornerstone. And Jesus said, God did this, planning it all along, how this rejection would flower into something much greater. And he explains exactly what he means. Again, back to verse 43, kind of leading into verse 44 there. I say to you, the kingdom will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. 
And he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. But on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. They're going to kill him. They're going to reject him. They're going to cast him out. And their whole system will come crashing down around their heads. And something new will begin. And that something new is much greater and far more influential, world-changing, and that's the church. And the cornerstone? Well, Ephesians 2.20 says Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone. But we know it from the parable because he's saying that right here. Their very rejection is the glorious beginning of God's redemptive plan in Jesus Christ. God's people will not be one nation but will be transnational, a, a church made up of Jews and Gentiles and people included from every country and every kind of language. And God's redemptive love will extend much farther than it had before. Much fruit will come. The stone is the focus of all attention. The stone is the determiner of events. He's the ter- it's the determiner of history, the maker of men's destinies. And he tells them what it means for the nation that rejects him. He who falls on it will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will be scattered like dust. That's another illusion he draws out of the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 8 this time. Isaiah 8, 13. It is the Lord of hosts whom you should regard as holy, and he shall be your fear, and he shall be your dread. And he shall become a sanctuary both to the house of Israel, a stone to strike and a rock to stumble over, and a snare and a trap for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Many will stumble over them and they will fall and be broken. They will be snared and caught. Christ is that stone. He's the Lord of hosts. And if you fall on this stone, you'll be broken. If the stone falls on you, you'll be scattered like dust. The Jewish nation in A.D. 70. This is taking place here in A.D. 33, less than 40 years later after Jesus spoke these words. If you were 25 years old when he spoke these words, if you were standing there, when you were 62, Rome would come in and completely destroy Jerusalem, tear down the temple, burn it, slaughter, crucify thousands, kill tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands, enslave hundreds of thousands more, not a... Not anybody would survive clean and come out. The great temple where Jesus taught and these priests ruled would be completely destroyed. And according to Josephus, a Jewish historian who witnessed that event, he said the Roman general tried to protect the temple because it was such a beautiful and sacred object and his men went wild and destroyed it anyway because God had ordained that that happened. He couldn't control his own people. But the same fate is due to everyone who rejects the lordship of Jesus Christ, then and now, they will trip over him or they will be crushed by him unless they embrace him. All these Old Testament images and reference points, references, they point to this one thing, the universal authority of Jesus of Nazareth as God's chosen Messiah and the king of this world. They all point to that. He's the one for whom history has waited and on whose life every person's destiny Depends. And rejecting him lost Israel its position as God's voice to the world. And this new age has been ushered in, what Jesus will call later in the gospel here the times of the Gentiles, the church age. Verse 43 Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. That's us. 
Your presence here this morning, I hope at least, is one small part of this great new work that began at the cross as Jesus bore the sins of mankind and by satisfying God's justice, he achieved for us true reconciliation with God. And by achieving our reconciliation, he, anyone, anyone who embraces him as a sovereign king and a savior becomes citizens of his kingdom and ambassadors for heaven. Millions of people will be delivered from wrath because of his working in and through his church, the fruitful vineyard. And you know, they got it. I, I admit he's being a little direct here in explaining the parable. So it's not like it would have been hard to understand, but they understood exactly what he was saying. Verse 45, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they understood that he was speaking about them. When they sought to seize him, they feared the people because they considered him to be a prophet. You see their reaction? They sought to seize him. It was a chance to cast themselves on his mercy. But they just hated him all the more. That's the human condition. A full rejection of the creator's rights, plundering his gifts as though they are Ours, as though they belong to us. It's all about us. But listen, what Jesus offered his people nationally, he offers to you personally, to be reconciled to God, to have a relationship with God. Creature to creator. Sinner to savior. A relationship. Without that, we will be crushed by the weight of his majesty. Come to Christ if you've never done it. And if you're wandering, you come home. It's a good day to come home. He has one more parable to tell, but that's for next week.